This is the Chronicles Podcast, a production of Chronicles Magazine, the original outlet for paleoconservative thought and a bastion of the authentic right in America. Well, welcome to another episode of Chronicles Magazine Podcast. I'm here today with Pedro Gonzalez. He's an editor at, at Chronicles, and he's probably better known than I am, but I'm happy to have him on to talk about Trump and MAGA, and we're going to talk a little bit about Tucker and some of those things. So, Pedro, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, CJ. All right, let's start. Uh, well, let's start with Tucker, actually, because that's the news we weren't planning to talk about, but it came up. You've been on Tucker, and I know you have some opinions on what's going on. So just, um, I guess, I guess to start with, uh, who's driving this and, and why was he let go? Nobody really knows. I, I think that the only thing that we know with absolute certainty is that the allegations made by Abby Roseberg or whatever her name is, this, this Fox employee who claimed that she had been like harassed and discriminated against that initially that was sort of the, the framing of this whole firing that, that, uh, Tucker is going out as someone who was brought down by you know a woman who was subject to bullying and all this stuff but it's just not true uh there's not only is there tons of pushback against her story people who are claiming that she never even met tucker um that her timeline doesn't make sense um it just on its face just seems absurd that fox news would kill its top talent basically because a woman on their team had her feelings hurt and it's funny because that that there was like a brief effort to make that sort of the framing of the story you know another man brought down by discrimination or whatever but like no one it was just it was so quickly discarded as as plausible uh and immediately everyone swung to these different theories i mean my my view of this is that basically tucker was using his show the biggest show in america to go after the most powerful people and entities, not just in the United States, but in the world on a nightly basis. Mm-hmm. And Fox basically just, I think, was very uncomfortable with that. Uh it, it opens them up to a lot of to a lot of trouble. You know, Murdoch, uh, the Murdoch family just wants to have their little bread and circuses. They don't actually want, you know, hard-hitting journalism, the kind of stuff that Tucker does. And uh, so they so they booted him. I I think that there was, I think that it seems to me there was a, a desire to find some kind of of pretext for doing that. And the Abby thing, maybe they thought that that was going to provide it, but it, it was so thin that it's already collapsed. And it, it's much more likely that it was his coverage on, um, whether it's January 6th or his coverage of Big Pharma, uh, his coverage of the Ukraine war. You know, th- this is someone who was the enemy, again, not just to the, the worst people in the United States, but also the worst people in the world. And it's telling that when Tucker was deplatformed or when Fox fired him, rather, um, you had a faceless people at the Pentagon celebrating to the press. So that pretty much tells you everything you need to know. It's astonishing that he lasted so long. Uh, what's even more astonishing, actually, is the fact that they thought the Abbey playbook uh, would be something that would uh, be believable. I mean, that's the kind of the thing that they do for all these different firings and nobody believes it anymore. So it just seems like they're out of touch with their reaction to that sort of sort of narrative. Um, 
but they're also out of touch. Like they think they can survive this. I, I don't see Fox surviving this. I I see this sort of backlash is sort of the some something that conservatives and flyover America is just it's just part of their DNA now. They just know that the corporations hate them, and this is just another layer on that wall. Yeah. It, well, I think Fox is going to limp on, but people quickly when I because I, I said something very similar like when it happened it wasn't immediately apparent to me by the way how nasty it was like I I I, I it like went over my head because it was such a shock and because the language initially was Fox and Tucker have agreed to part ways mm-hmm. and then shortly after that it was like it became clear that this was basically an ambush mm-hmm. and like it but it was just it sent so many people reeling um but anyways one of the one of the things I said once it became clear how nasty this was is that that it's not going to be um, it's not going to be a situation like Bill O'Reilly uh, because people likened it to that right well Bill O'Reilly was Fox News's top talent and then he had to go uh, and Fox survived right that's true but not only was Tucker actually ultimately a bigger draw in terms of viewership than Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly never reached the the audience that Tucker reached. Mm -hmm. I I tweeted about this a few times, but Tucker actually had a much larger portion of the uh, 25 to 45 uh, age range uh, Democratic viewer. Mm -hmm. He he was capturing a a, a larger, he was consistently capturing a larger chunk of that audience than any show on CNN or MSNBC. Bill Mm -hmm. O'Reilly never did that. You know, Bill O'Reilly was like Sean Hannity, just like preaching to the choir every night. Uh, Tucker was reaching across the aisle. And I, I would personally experience this when I'd go on a show, talk about like BlackRock or, you know, Bill Gates buying up all the land uh, that we used to, to grow food or whatever. And the, I'd basically get after the show, I'd get followed by like moderate Democrats, like people in Portland, Oregon would like retweet my segment where I'm bashing Bill Gates and stuff. And, and so Bill Riley never had that effect. And so I, I think that Fox will survive, but it, it's going to really hurt them in a way. And I, I, admittedly, I hope it does. It's going to hurt them in a way that that this has not hurt them before. Mm-hmm. So, And certainly if Tucker um, decides to do his own thing. So... Right. Uh, so let's let's shift gears now, because I think part of this, too, you know, they had to prepare for the 2024 elections, and that might be a large part of this. I mean, narrative shifts and narrative leaks are happening all over the place. And someone like Tucker was a weak spot for the regime narratives. Um, so I want to shift over. You've been critical recently and have come under fire by even people on the right for um, your criticism of the MAGA phenomenon. So let's we'll get to that in a second. But I want you to step back a little bit and sort of compare you know Trump's uh, function in the in the realm of political discourse now compared to in 2016. Do you think things have really changed for him? Yeah, I, I think what made Trump a phenomenon was the same thing initially that made someone like Bernie Sanders a phenomenon. He was saying things that nobody else was saying. There was a kind of novelty to these to these campaigns. Bernie Sanders is terrible now. He just endorsed Biden. Like it, it, it was very funny how how quickly he went from being like a kind of populist tribune. To just being, you know, another member of the DNC, just. But um, but what made his initial candidacy uh, as phenomenal as Trump's is precisely that kind of that contentiousness that they had, the the the, the willingness to to say things that others were not saying, um, and more importantly, to challenge their respective parties. And you 
just don't see that anymore with Trump. Uh, he he's it's sort of like you're getting um, a rehashing of the greatest hits, and in many ways, this is just the nature of of politics. You can't be the anti-establishment guy when you've already been president. Mm -hmm. You can't be the outsider when you've already been inside the White House. And and there's this problem that no one has really managed to iron out because obviously his campaign is doing this weird thing where they're running as, you know, we're the insurgents again. No, you're not. You have Kevin McCarthy and Ronald McDaniel and most of the GOP endorsing you. You know, like you've got Roger Stone openly tweeting stuff like so-and-so better endorse, otherwise he's going to get, he's going to face a primary challenge. It's like, that's like what Mitch McConnell does to people. And so there's just an inherent um, problem with the campaign trying to basically redo 2016, recapture the the MAGA magic, the me magic of 2016, which you just can't. It's just the the the, the laws of physics. Like you can't be young again. Uh, it, it's just it, you, you can't do. You can't go back in time and and redo 2016 uh, when you've already been president of the United States. You know, and I think it, a lot of this was reflected in his. Uh, he he posted something along the lines of basically, I don't want to debate because I shouldn't have to. And also any debates that happen, if they happen, have to be approved by me first. It's like Trump in 2016 could not have said that because he was actually an outsider. But, you know, Trump now is basically saying I'm in control of the party and there will be no debates unless I agree to them. Mm -hmm. So do you think um, where do you think MAGA is going? It, it, it seems like in the beginning, you know, in 2016, it was a very much an organic phenomenon. And now it just seems to have uh, a layer of grift on it. Uh, do you see things the same way? Yeah, I mean, I've never uh, all of my criticisms of MAGA Inc., as I call it, because we, we've heard a lot about conservatism, Inc., but not enough has been said of, of MAGA Inc., which is just conservatism, Inc., with a MAGA hat on it. Um, I've I've never stopped believing for a moment in the promise of the phrase America first. Mm -hmm. That's all of my criticisms actually stem from that position that, uh, that this is what I this is what I want. This is what I believe in. Um, but I think the problem with MAGA Inc. is that you've got this separation between uh, the man and the America first mandate. And what I mean by that is that there's no it, it seems like for a lot of people. Um, who are dependent on Trump's success or on his continued presence in, in the at the forefront of the GOP, um, they don't care basically about anything except for Trump being around. And this is obviously not true for, you know, I I meet with the average Trump supporter, you know, I, like just recently actually I was in DC and I met people who are very pro-Trump um, they agree with some of my criticisms. They disagree with others, but they're all really civil. And at the end of the day, they just want uh, the the best who they think the best Republican is to basically be the one to challenge Biden. Mm -hmm. But the kind of like insane vitriol that you see on Twitter uh, from people who are in some way or another, like monetarily or like psychically dependent on Trump, um, that that is where this this kind of layer of grift come in, comes in because these are the kinds of people. Uh, who will defend Trump when he like sides with Disney uh, or when, when, when his surrogates will say, you guys should stop boycotting Bud Light for pushing transgenderism. Uh, these are the kinds of people that will always find a way to rationalize why that's actually okay and consistent with, with America first. 
um, because the only thing they care about is Trump. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I'm critical of. So do you, so in 2016, Trump seemed like he was the only person speaking to a certain contingent of like heritage American. He was the only one that cared what they were thinking and feeling and the difficulties they were going through. Do you feel like he's lost t- complete touch with his base? It's difficult because Trump, his strength is that he's he's just a very good um he he's very good at populism, but like in the worst in the worst sense, where basically he um he he's very or he can be very good at kind of reaching the the the, the masses, reaching the crowd, right? Um but I think when you when you actually look at his record, um, you can see how he ha- kind of has this abusive relationship with heritage Americans, whatever you want to call them. Um, go back to his administration, actually look at, you know, what the what the focus was. And it was everybody but the heritage Americans, the, the people, in other words, that delivered him his victory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even still recently, right, like after midterms, like, it's funny because after midterms, people were trying to make these kind of nuanced arguments for what went wrong. Um, you know, my position was the GOP, like hardly even tried during uh, in the lead up to the midterms. They were basically just saying the red wave is inevitable because Democrats bad. And so we shouldn't be surprised, you know, why there wasn't a red wave. What did Trump do? He he threw abortion and by extension, evangelicals under the bus, which it's funny because people were saying like, look, let's not blame Trump or abortion or like any one thing. Like there were all these different factors. And then Trump comes along and says, basically, it was abortion and those evangelicals. And like you, you go back and that's not surprising if you go back to his administration and you see that the focus was like on basically courting every other type of demographic except for that demographic. And I, I spoke to, to White House personnel who were very close to the campaign and worked for people that are running the campaign. Uh, and, and they told me that it was official White House policy policy to not expand that coalition, not to build on the coalition, but to basically take them for granted. Where are the heritage Americans going to go? They're not going to vote for Biden. They're screwed. So we can shove the First Step Act down their throat. We can shove the Platinum Plan down their throat. We can shove amnesty down their throat because where are they going to go? And that contributed. That was a, a huge reason uh, that, you know, that turned me away from from like the, the MAGA Inc. Uh, circus. Is to what extent do you think Trump is controlled um, by his team or or is he making his own decisions and his own calls? I think Trump is is it, it's interesting because Trump is so easily influenced by people. There's like I think Bannon was the one that pointed this out that like you have to be careful about how Trump gets his information because he's very easily he can be very easily kind of manipulated based on who's talking to him and what he's looking at. Bannon said that. Um and so it's a combination of the fact that that Trump gives this appearance of being like very independent and kind of a loose cannon. But he's also very, very easy to to kind of ply and manipulate, and and so, um, so that the, the what happens is is you end up getting like the worst kinds of people in close proximity to him who kind of enable his his instead of holding him back and saying maybe you shouldn't post that on True Social, maybe you shouldn't you know share that and call you know suggest that DeSantis is like a groomer or something you shouldn't do that instead it's like yeah do it. It's like it's the you know that's a that's the move or whatever, and so I think that's a huge problem. One of the the last segments I did with Tucker was about Lindsey uh, Lindsey Graham, and Tucker made this point about um about Lindsey Graham being a flatterer, and and that is why Lindsey Graham um 
can continue being kind of a, a Trump confidant because he always says what Trump wants to hear. But that, and, and, you know, the people that said, well, that's just because he's a flatterer doesn't mean he has influence over Trump. Yes, he does. Go back to COVID, uh, or right before COVID, Lindsey Graham was le uh, helping lead a push to increase the number of EB-5 visas that the White House was uh, going to basically change policy to make it so that essentially more Chinese investors can can buy buy America. Um, Lindsey Graham actually, like it, it, once you have that kind of foothold uh, in Trump world, you actually can uh, determine outcomes. So it's a huge problem. We talk, I talked to Daniel McCarthy two weeks ago for Chronicles, and uh, you know he's very pro-Trump still, and he thinks that um, just just functionally, DeSantis should play the role of supporting Trump one more time. Um, you, you seem to be more of the of the persuasion that that DeSantis should run. Is that is that correct? I I just think it's difficult because my my view of this is basically that Biden by the most likely outcome of twenty twenty four is that Biden wins. Mm -hmm. That's it. I, I think that even I think DeSantis has a better chance of beating Biden, but I still think that even DeSantis has a really uphill battle. Mm -hmm. And 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 so the problem that I have, the, the main problem that I have with Trump is precisely that it's this kind of like he. I view Trump as as kind of subverting the right, whether or not that's intentional, I, I have no idea. But, you know, when, when you're attacking DeSantis by laundering talking points that are put together by nonprofits that are backed by George Soros, which is what Trump just did, by the way, uh, when when you and your camp are telling conservatives to not boycott companies that are pushing transgenderism, when, when you're taking the side of, of a massive evil corporation like Disney against your own, and not even like, there was a Harvard-Harris poll in April that found that most Americans not just Republicans, most Americans, and obviously the vast majority of Republicans, are side with DeSantis when the issue is framed as it should be, not as like necessarily a battle against a woke corporation, but a battle over who rules. Are corporations subject to any accountability? Or is it our role to just shower them with privileges and, and never attempt to hold them accountable for their abuses? Mm -hmm. Most Americans agree, like when the question is framed like that, which again, I think is the proper framing, most Americans agree with DeSantis and they're on his side, but Trump isn't. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, you have to see how destructive that is. Like you, you have a guy who's convincing his base to basically not stand their ground on really important fights. And in some cases, accept the ground that's held, that's been held by the left like five years ago. Um, so I think that, I think that the 2024 thing is, is, is important, but it's ultimately kind of a, like a footnote in this broader problem of, the right is being led by a guy who's not actually on the right. Mm -hmm. What issues do you think um, any legitimate right wing, you know, political figure should pursue? Like, what what's the right strategy here? I think that Trump won on ideas that are still fresh and, uh, like, you know, re restricting immigration, um, rolling back the the American empire, uh, in terms of like foreign policy, realism and restraint, um. I think that this this kind of strain of of the correct kind of economic populism, where you have these challenges that are being issued to again, I mean, this is this was Trump's strength early on was breaking the consensus, uh, saying that you know we're for we're for business, we're for Main Street, but we're not for Wall Street, and and um, breaking the mold on the on the GOP, and 
you had these these moments it's kind of interesting because you you see these parallels but they're they're actually they're they're happening to DeSantis not necessarily Trump this time like there, there was an article recently about DeSantis it was an article or a comment from a politician about DeSantis's um his fight with Disney and and it, it kind of his it was being framed as like he's anti-business and therefore he's not a real conservative and when I saw that I thought that's basically what people were saying about Trump in 2016. Mm -hmm. He's not a real conservative because of these positions that he's uh, that he takes on economics and other things. And um, you you so basically, I think those ideas are still powerful. Uh, restricting immigration, uh, ch challenging corporate power, um, challenging uh, the, the overbearing regulatory agencies that you know made us all suffer under COVID. Um, and, and obviously foreign policy. And by the way, I think this is why RFK Jr.'s candidacy is so exciting, not just for like moderate Democrats, but there's like a non-trivial number of independents and even Republicans who really like the guy because he's saying all these things too. So I think these these are perennial these are perennial things because they resonate with most Americans. And the problem is obviously taking them from the stage of rhetoric to, to policy. Mm -hmm. It seems people like RFK Jr. and even even DeSantis somewhat um their horizons are are broader. They're you know they're wider looking than than Trump's is, and Trump seems to be very myopic. He he tends to look at himself as as the only thing that's uh, relevant to him. Um, and so you know I, I just I just wonder if Trump is has the ability to personify anything larger than himself, and it and it doesn't seem so. And it, at the moment, it doesn't seem anyone in his circles is pushing him um, in in the in that direction. So, in twenty twenty four, you see Biden winning. Um, and Trump, do you think Trump's going to make sort of a quiet exit away from politics? And what do you think's next for him? You think they're going to? Do you think they continue to build their momentum and and their like sort of like corporate? Um, you know, they they need to continue the grift beyond twenty twenty four. Is that the way you see it? Well, look at it this way: <clears throat> Trump raised a billion dollars um, ahead of twenty twenty and lost. And I know that there's this. This is like a, a a hot button thing for the right right now. You're not supposed to to say he lost because of of, of fraud and regulators. Look, I, I like, and I used to to kind of buy into that. Um, I did, and I, I even I wrote an article about like actually verifiable instances of of irregularities, <laughs> things like that. And it was actually I, Trump retweeted it. Um, but like the the, the Dominion stuff, I never believed, mm -hmm. and um, but now basically this whole story of like the stolen election i can't stomach it anymore because it's just it's just like loser talk in terms mm -hmm. of from the from the campaign perspective the election was stolen from us no you you let democrats take it from you mm -hmm. because they were more serious they were better organized and and they were much more committed to doing whatever it took to win and you might like you know the, the trump's campaign or his camp whatever might say that that's playing dirty doesn't matter biden's in the white house he won. Right. right. And that's all that matters at the end of the day. And this whole like whining over the election being stolen and I'm owed something. That's how losers talk. De de like Mark Elias, the 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 Democrat machine that there was an article in Time magazine, the shadow campaign to to tilt the election in Biden's favor. The, the word was save, I think. Um, like, yeah, that, that's right. Democrats were super serious. Uh, they organized a campaign to kill the Trump administration and they and they did it. So so a billion dollars couldn't save the the Trump campaign and then he loses and raises an, another 250 million dollars on losing so basically no if he loses again in 2024 and I think that's at this point the most likely outcome unless there's like a deep recession or like World War three or something 
um, which is not off the table. Um, I, I think that, no, he, it's, he's not going to go away. It's just stolen election all over again. Give money mm -hmm. to help overturn the, the results or something. Help, like, it, like, and the thing is, is like you already see this happening with other people, like Carrie Lake. Like Carrie Lake is like the franchise version of this, right? Like she's like, there are people that refer to her as like the governor of Arizona and stuff. And it's mostly like her surrogates who are like somehow kind of depend on this whole grift continuing. Um, so I think you've got a, basically a new model for the, G a potentially a new model for the GOP. Well, winning doesn't matter because you can still make tons of money by losing and then just whining. It's funny that he falls back into conservative incorporated. Like that's kind of just been their role over the last you know several decades. Uh, but I agree with you. I, I think that people like Carrie Lake, you know, they're so focused on Trump actually won the election. It's like, look who's in power. You know, yes. winning isn't about this mythical, uh, you know, election technicalities. It's about who captures power. I mean, that's the realism of politics. And if you can't deal with it, if you're going to get hung up on the myths, then you're not actually dealing in political reality and you don't, um, you know, deserve people to look to you. But I think that's one of the things that the conservative movement has has failed greatest on. They're so focused on the myths of things that they can't actually look at who is wielding power that's that's who won you know that's that's who Carrie Lake needs to look to is she lost she lost because she wasn't willing to do whatever it takes to capture power you yeah. don't have to be nice you know this isn't this isn't a church this is politics if you're not ready for politics then don't get into politics do you think there's anyone coming up behind Trump that has the same message that is someone that can be uh you know trusted to carry forth the original maga momentum I don't know. I think that you're always going to have this kind of, um, I think obviously DeSantis is the one that everyone sees or that some people see as the kind of heir to this stuff. But now you've got this new problem, right? Where you're being seen as the person that's carrying on the mantle of, of Trumpism. What is Trumpism? Mm -hmm. Is it restricting immigration or is it amnesty? Is it standing up for heritage Americans or is it the platinum plan? Um, is it, the America first, or is it Trump first? And depending on which Trumpism you're looking at, um, the heir is going to be DeSantis or Carrie Lake. Mm -hmm. it, it seems clear to me that people like the, the people on on the you know the the MAGA Inc. side of things, they view Carrie Lake as like his as is the person that's carrying the torch for him. Mm -hmm. And I think that because of that problem now, it's not like basically. What matters now is not that someone is seen as like the legitimate heir of Trump, which is kind of ridiculous if you like we live in a monarchy. I mean, like I'm not against monarchy, but we don't live in a monarchy. And so this whole idea of like you need to like you you have to have a legitimate successor uh, to Trump is just ridiculous to me. And so I think that what matters more now is not who who can be seen as like the the legitimate heir of Trump, but who can be seen as like the most consistent with the principles of America first which is a phrase that predates Trump. Trump mm -hmm. did not coin America first, right? We, we can look to people like ba Pat Buchanan and even before him uh, for, for what the meaning of those words mean. And I, I, so I think that's that's something that I'm increasingly, I think we need to reevaluate is this whole idea of like, well, who's going to be the, uh, the the heir to Trump? Because I think that that is, that is such a ridiculous question at this point. Uh, and, and like I said, you, you have an answer. It's Carrie Lake. Mm-hmm. Do you, uh, do you think the GOP is going to be a legitimate uh, vehicle for right-wing uh, political activity? Well, it's interesting because like on the national level, the, the you know, the big faces of the GOP, um, I think are all kind of like, they've all hitched their wagons to Trump. 
which is not a good thing. Uh, you know, you had this picture of all these these like Florida, these particular uh, Republicans like meeting with Trump at Mar-a-Lago in Florida, um, you know, sitting in his table, just like a, just like a court, right? Like they're sitting around the king all smiling and stuff. Meanwhile, DeSantis is like waging war with Disney, like trying to take on this super powerful corporation. Um, but, you know, they can't show support for him because it, it would offend the king. Um, so so on the one like on that level, it, it's all just like annoying theater uh, and just, you know, people just showing their fealty to the figurehead of the GOP. But then on the state level, uh, you have people who are much more like low profile, but also much more serious who I think are doing really interesting things that are way more consistent with what, you know, we on the America first side of things believe in an example is uh, Riley Moore. Uh, and by the way, I've, 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 I've no idea if Riley, I'm, I'm sure Riley Moore supports Trump. Um, but I, the reason I'm saying Riley Moore is interesting is because I don't think most, it's, he's not like Matt Gates or whatever. Like I, I think most people have, are not aware of who he is, but he's the treasurer of, of West Virginia. And um, he he managed to get, I think, U.S. Bank to reverse its ESG policies, uh, specifically regarding like uh, the the policies that that certain banks were laying down about um, you know fighting climate change, which is obviously bad for a state like West Virginia because it's this is coal country. Um, and he actually managed to get one of these huge banks to change its policies regarding fossil fuels and climate change by by basically threatening them with the power of the purse. And I think that's awesome. Uh, and, and so the question becomes is like, wait, if the if the treasurer of West Virginia can do that, why can't we do it everywhere else where mm -hmm. we have red states? Why and also why can't the federal government why can't can we federalize this? Can we take this kind of policy and this kind of attitude, um, this willingness to use power all the way to the White House? Mm -hmm. If if West Virginia can do it, why can't the White House do it? Right. And so and and you know, and then you've got other states that are banning like um medical interventions, gender affirming care for, for so-called trans youth and stuff like that. Like you, you have really interesting stuff happening at the States uh, that's really consistent with, with what we think, which is in like stark contrast to like the RNC, you know, like serving Bud Light and, you know, having like the, the RNC pride coalition and stuff like that. Um, so it's, it's, it's difficult. It, it like, and before 2024 kicked off, this is why I was mainly looking at the states and and doing exactly that. Like, look at what the states are doing, and let's talk about doing this everywhere we can. And then in the future, down the road, you know, taking this kind of stuff to the White House because the states are like labs for what the the right can accomplish uh, when it's willing to use power. So, yeah, I think I mean what you just said there is basically you have to engage in political realities. Like besides all of the the grifting and the, the ads and the you know the branding and all of that, you have to have individuals who are willing to look at what power options they have and engage in realistic situations. And so, you know, I'm I'm sort of suspicious of people like DeSantis. I'm I I'm much more cynical. I've I, for for decades, I think uh, you know the conservatives have been sold. Um, you know, under the bus by by people that that are well connected. On the other hand, he actually is wielding power within yeah. his own context, and I think you have to look to people who are willing to wield power. And I didn't see Trump; he had his chance, and I didn't see him willing to actually wield uh, power in an effective way. And so I'm, you know, I'm I'm a little bit less enthusiastic about him um, yeah. this turnaround. So any any final add, thoughts on that? Yeah, I'll add one more thing. Again, like I'm in this difficult position where. Um, 
I'm obviously, you know, extremely critical of Trump. And and I think DeSantis is actually far more interesting because he's competent. Um, but I think, I mean, like the lesson of Trump, and I, I, this apparently used to be Chronicles' logo, and it, I, I'd be nice to actually see it in the magazine, is putting out your faith in princes. Uh, basically, politicians are vehicles, right? And, and so my support is going to be with the politician who I think is more competent. That's mm-hmm. what it comes down to. And like you said, DeSantis actually seems to be more competent than Trump when it comes to using the tools that are at his disposal to to fight for for what he thinks is either what his base wants, uh, which is c- kind of funny that people condemn him for that, right? It's like, oh, he's just doing this because his base wants him to. That's great. Mm-hmm. I'm glad he's doing that. Should he do what Mitch McConnell does, where he's just like, I don't, I'm not aware of a single person who's against the United States giving Ukraine unlimited aid, you know? Um, that that's I'm I, that's great. That, that if that's actually the case, he's just doing this uh, and he's willing to actually, you know, to incur uh, some, like, for example, th- there's this whole narrative that he's controlled by donors, uh, right? That, that was the narrative for the last few months. But now you're seeing that like there are donors, g- big GOP donors who are actually angry at him, mm-hmm. specifically because of the stances that he's taking on like cultural issues. There was an article in the Financial Times about this. There was some donor who was like, I'm very close to dropping my support for DeSantis because he will not stop these culture war fights. Mm-hmm. And then again, like the 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 campaign people around Trump, like Jason Miller, actually shared an article in the last few days about about this exact topic, that there are some donors who are grumbling that DeSantis is actually, you know, actually believes in these culture war fights and he won't put them down. And that's not good. Jason Miller, one of these people that's been framing DeSantis is like totally owned lock, stock and barrel by donors gleefully celebrating the fact that these donors are getting uncomfortable with DeSantis actually believing in what he does. And, and obviously what's implied there is that they might come over to Trump. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, I think it's, you're in this really unusual position where like, like my tendency is like yours to be very cynical and, and deeply skeptical of politicians, but you can't overlook that, that, that you actually have powerful people with money that are getting angry at a politician because he actually seems to believe in in what he's doing. Mm-hmm. But again, like the cynical part of you is like, no, I'm reading too much into that. But, um, and and meanwhile, the guy who's like independent is obviously, you know, uh, like the the recent like the financial disclosures that just came out for Trump, they show that he that he actually has like a, a pretty significant vested interest in uh and in the the parent company of Bud Light. Right. Right. Yep. There so, you go. I like your idea of using politicians as a vehicle. I mean, DeSantis is someone that's going to be able to hire, um, you know, people that are more like like minded, you know, more on the right uh, than other people, and and that can be used to influence policy um, as well. So, uh, before I let you go, what other projects are you are you working on? What things are you reading? Things like that. Yeah. Um, well, I'm actually I'm working on a big report for the uh, American Principles Project on. It's been several months in in the in the process um, for the American Principles Project on diversity, equity, and uh, and inclusion. And basically, I'm I'm making the argument very similar to Christopher Caldwell. I'm making the argument that um, the DEI is not Marxism. It's actually just the continuation of the affirmative action regime. It's kind of like affirmative action freed from all of its contradictions, because obviously you have this problem where you had equal opportunity and affirmative action at these kind of competing theories for how to fix our our problems in society. Um, Equal opportunity being kind of like a neutral uh, set of circumstances that affords everyone the same playing field to start on. And then 
affirmative action being basically kind of a substantive, uh, a substantive, um, it, it's it's substantive in nature in the sense that with affirmative action, the theory is that it's not enough to eliminate these barriers that open up the level playing field. Uh, you you also have to create conditions that enable people to succeed, mm-hmm. and so that obviously what's implied in that is 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 social uh, society wide social engineering. You have to in order to have equality of opportunity, you have to have equality of condition. And so for the longest time, you had these kind of this this tension, right? Because both of these things kind of want to go in the same direction, but they're also kind of dancing around the, these problems of like, you know, in a, being engaged in essentially reverse discrimination. I view DEI as basically just affirmative action, no longer concerned with reverse discrimination. It's just, it's free of all contradictions. Um, and, but if that's the case, then it's also true that if it's not like it's not Marxism, it's not some like weird Frankfurt school theory. It's actually just the consequence of deliberate policy choices that arose from the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and 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 were codified in the Civil Rights Act. And this is the argument that essentially Christopher Caldwell makes in Age of Entitlement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm actually trying to trace the the pieces of legislation, like the executive orders, to show that you have this progression from like, equality of opportunity to affirmative action to DEI. Mm-hmm. And it all comes back to the civil rights movement. And I think that's far more controversial than like the Frankfurt School. I agree. I agree because what what these what conservative incorporated wants to get back to is um you know the the well-intentioned civil rights revolution, the well-intentioned civil rights act. You know, they wanted to get back to that, but you're saying this what we're seeing now is is an extension of that and it's a continuation of that. And we don't have to look to like foreign conspiracy theories and an infiltration from, you know, uh bad actors and all that. It's actually right. built into the cake um yes. and the very thing that the conservative movement has been built on is now leading and degrading into what we're seeing now. So I agree yeah. with you. That's good work. And those are good themes uh, to be addressing. So Pedro, I thank you for taking the time to do this and um, best of luck to you. And we'll have you on again. 